Welcome, this is Lisa, where we go inside addiction to raise your level of consciousness. Today we have Jolene on the podcast and we're going to talk about Jolene's unique unique approach to drinking, how our neurotransmitters play a role in our drinking, and lastly grey area drinking and the kind of drinking that others say you don't have a problem or you're not that bad or it's not like you're an alcoholic or anything and loads loads more. But before we get into the show, I just wanted to say thanks to our audience for listening. And I wanted to let you know that you can take the next step on your journey by downloading my free ebook. You'll learn seven practical tools to build a mental solid foundation to get your drink and drug use under control. Just go to insideaddiction.co.uk forward slash foundation. Now on to the show. Welcome, Jolene. It's great to have you on the podcast. Thanks, Luke. I'm happy to be here with you today. Awesome. So to kick us off, Jolene, I just wondered what advice you would give to the version of yourself that was, you know, drinking and where you were at the time and what was going on. Oh, that's a good question. Uh, the advice I would give is the way I was drinking certainly um, wasn't normal. Um, and I, I think the biggest piece was I was not alone. That's what I didn't realize when I was drinking. Um you know, I, I had a group of friends. We were out all the time. Everyone, you know, the kind of happy hours, the networking, lots of drinking. And um, and I struggled quietly, silently with that level of drinking. Um, I enjoyed it, you know, initially in the first um, early hours of the night, but then struggled with um, how I felt and didn't share that with others. <laughs> My hangovers were always, always big. Um, and didn't talk about that. But struggled with, um, you know, that, that thing of like, I'm just going to have one and then wouldn't have one. And, um, and didn't talk about that either. And so what I would, you know, share with myself and what I wish I could have told myself during those times was so many people, as in like millions of people, <laughs> go through that same struggle. Um, it's, it's a very real struggle. And, um, and, you know, you can stop anytime. Like, when you're in that struggle, it means um, that, you know, there's something happening here, and it's more than okay to step back and, and take a look at it. Yeah, awesome. And just to take us back a bit, what was your life like kind of growing up and your drinking and all that kind of stuff? What's uh, the history behind Jolene? <laughs> so I, I wasn't a big drinker in high school and college. Um, I was an anxious kid. And um, didn't, I, you know, I, it wasn't that I wouldn't drink, but I just didn't kind of have an interest in it. Early on, more of my self-soothing way to kind of calm my anxiety was food and sugar. And, um, and just there wasn't kind of that connection. Even though people around me drank, part of my anxiety was a bit of the hypochondria piece. And so I was, um, part of my panic was the fear of like losing control. And so I didn't want to drink to a level where I, you know, was felt out of control. So it just didn't kind of appeal to me until my late 20s um, after a breakup that I was just crushed over and literally, you know, fetal position brought to my knees and had wine in my house. I had gotten it as, as a gift at like a professional, you know, kind of how they do those gift baskets and had this bottle just in my kitchen kind of this decoration and um and there was this moment where I was like screw it I'm gonna just open this bottle of wine and and I was like 
what am I going to do? Like, this is amazing. This wine, because a lot of it had been, you know, like wine coolers and high school or mixed drinks. I didn't like that. But when I tried the wine kind of under those circumstances where I was um, feeling a lot of grief and, and emotional pain um, and just the ruminating in my mind about the relationship, it's like it was just this immediate elixir and it clicked for me. I was like, why haven't I done this before? Like now I get it. Why do people drink? And so that, that was where it really started for me was in my late twenties. And, um, and just that connection of when I was anxious, when my mind was ruminating, when there was pain or frustration, um, or just even, you know, after a long day of, of work and wanting to kind of come down from all of, again, that mental activity, it didn't have to be a bad day. Um, I found very quickly how wine was this great remedy. Like it changed my physical state in a good way initially. And so through my 30s, I, I drank and my um, drinking continued to increase and certainly, you know, found groups of friends to, to hang out with, like I mentioned before, the happy hours, the girls night out where it all looked normal and I fit in drinking, you know, the wine, the level that I was drinking. And I also drank a lot on my own at home on the couch to, you know, soothe whatever was happening. Um, and that's where it really took off for me and continued to spiral for me into my early 40s. Yeah. And like you said, you were in those kind of happy hour groups. And how did things progress from there? Well, I mean, the drinking definitely progressed as, as the years went on, um, which is one of kind of the definitions of, you know, they'll say with, with alcoholic drinking. I don't consider myself an alcoholic. I don't identify with that label. Um, but I also know um, with no uncertain terms that the way I was drinking was very problematic. It was very easy and frequent for me to drink a bottle of wine most nights. <laughs> There's nothing um, healthy or recommended or safe about that on first, you know, on so many levels. Um, and so it would escalate. And the way it really escalated to my pattern was I would have stop periods. So um, I'm a nutritionist. I was working in wellness and, and health, teaching corporate wellness. And um, so I was you know, teaching all of these concepts about brain chemistry and, and eating and, and wellness and then fitting in very well with how I was drinking personally and socially. And so I would, I had handfuls of times where I'd say, I'm going to do a paleo challenge because it's what I study, it's what I teach. I'm going to do a yoga challenge um, or just kind of silently on my own and say, I'm just uh, enough. I'm not going to drink for a while. And I did that many, many times. And then after a period of weeks or months, I would say, why am I being so restrictive? I don't, this doesn't need to be so all or nothing. It doesn't need to be this uh, completely black or white thing. And then I'd go back to drinking. Um, and each time I'd go back, I'd start to drink. I'd go back to the level that I was drinking when I stopped, and it would escalate to more. So that's how over the years it really um, escalated. And it was all through my 30s. When you were doing these healthy, like you say, challenges, whether it be the yoga or the paleo, all that kind of stuff, what were some of the things um, that sort of led you back to drinking again? Was it that the challenges just ended? What was it that came up for you? It, it was really just my own mental chatter and my own ongoing kind of internal conversation. Um, of, you know, as many people um, can identify, there's that point of like, I'm not going to drink like this again. And they don't drink for a couple days, weeks or months. And, and that's what I would do. And then I'd get, you know, a couple weeks, months out feeling good saying, 
why am I doing this? Like, I don't need to be this restricted, forgetting, you know, that, that, that day when I was like, I can't keep doing this. It was, I would, I call it drinking amnesia. And so it was just my own kind of internal, um, like I want basically what I was saying was I want that feeling. I like that just, um, to me it was like warm honey kind of going head to toe and just shut down my anxious, ruminating, worrying mind. And I wanted that again. And it's like, why am I restricting myself from this? Um, I can have a drink. I can be social. I can go out and I could, I could definitely do that. But then also what I did is on the way home, I would stop on my own at, you know, a bar, sit and have a drink, come home, open a bottle and, and, you know, have more. So a lot of my drinking was on my own. Um, to just to really get that anesthetizing effect. Um, and so I just went, I, it was just a constant kind of internal struggle of I want that effect, I want that feeling, but I don't um, want all the negative ramifications, but I don't want to give this up forever. And so it was just this spiral that went on for a couple of years until I got to that final quit of it's a Groundhog Day that was not changing. And what would you say the difference is between like a grey area drinker and an alcoholic? I mean, that's a hard question. I don't, you know, I'm certainly not the the expert, you know, to, to put the sword in the, in the sand on this and, and to, to ultimately define that. Um, I think it's hard for anybody to, to define it, um, you know, of, of where that subjective definition of uh, just problem drinker, substance abuse disorder, turns into alcoholism, grayer drinker versus sober curious, social drinker versus it, it all is so murky. And, and what I go back to with this is that what we do know is at the beginning, um, instead of looking towards the end stage definition, but the beginning definition is there is no safe or recommended intake of alcohol at all, zero zilch. And that's not my opinion. That's the CDC, it's um, at, you know, the American Cancer Association, they just came out with that in 2020. They tightened those, um, kind of those definitions even tighter, the World Health Organization said this. So, um, so alcohol is not a necessary nutrient, it's not a recommended, you know, from, from like a nutrition standpoint, we can live quite fine without alcohol. There's other things that, that our body needs that we can't live without like water, like certain, you know, food and that kind of thing. So there is no safe or recommended intake of alcohol. For women, anything over five ounces of wine every day um, starts to become heavy drinking. And five ounces of wine, I never poured that. That's a small amount. And I never ordered that. You know, it's when we would go out, it's, a bartender's always pour five ounces is, is very small. So often most glasses are two servings. They're getting close to 10 ounces. Um, so my point is, it doesn't take much to get to a heavy, risky level of, of drinking. Most people who are drinking are at that level. It doesn't take buckets and buckets of alcohol, but it just takes, you know, a couple drinks, truly, um, on a daily basis. And so to get to that stage of, uh, you know, alcoholic, I, I just think that's such a hard word. Um, to even put a definition on. What I will say is, um, you know, gray area drinkers, where I define myself and, and um, you know, identify with and the people I work with in the gray area, um, they can and do have the capacity and ability to stop drinking. So I, you know, could drink a bottle of wine by myself on most occasions. <laughs> and I know the people who drink more than that on most occasions. And can and do stop drinking. 
um, without going into a physical level of detox where medical support is needed um, and that physical environment to hold um, and support during that physical process. So I wasn't at that level and people I work with aren't at that level, but, um, but that's certainly a farther down the spectrum level where needing to go to a completely different physical environment in order to physically stop drinking, that's not gray area drinking. So that's my roundabout of, um, it's really hard to define or identify, but I'll say gray area drinkers can and do stop drinking um, on their own and they're heavy excessive drinkers. And just coming back to your story, that sense of you were drinking, things were kind of progressing. Where, how did things go along that journey, and and yeah, what sort of happened along the way? Well, nothing bad ever happens. So I never got pulled over while driving. I never, um, nothing legal, you know, ever happened as far as an arrest, a DUI. Um, I was never, you know. All of those stereotypical things, and my clients all say this to me too when we first start working together. They'll, um, when we start our coaching, they'll say, "I function really well." I'm like, "I know you do." All gray area drinkers um, typically function really well. There aren't kind of those external negative um, things that we can say as proof. It's like, see, you know, your uh, the drinking head has really escalated. So I didn't have any any of those things. Um, but how, it, tell me your question again of like how it progressed or? Yeah, just how it progressed. But like you say, with the not having a stereotypical kind of um, DUIs, all that kind of stuff. I mean, what, um, yeah, what are some of those other characteristics of things not going um, catastrophically wrong in a sense? I think the biggest thing for me, and, and also a really typical characteristic of gray area drinking, is the stopping and then restarting, and stopping and restarting. And I think that can go on for years. Um, I, I went through that process for, for many years. It's that groundhog day, that back and forth, is a really, really common characteristic of gray area drinkers. Um, and I remember kind of on one of my final stops, I and mean, I probably stopped 10 times. Um, and then restarted drinking before I, I got to my final, like, resolute, this is it. And it was like that final stop before my final stop. I remember taking a walk with a friend and saying to him, because um, I was very kind of honest with him throughout about my struggle. Uh, I didn't talk about it too much, but I talked with him. And I said, I'm putting myself in a huge timeout here. Like, I'm not drinking right now. I don't know if I'll go back to, to drinking, but if I do, and if... You know, it just the it's like I, I go back to kind of the same situation, which I always did. I was like, then that is that is it. Like that is absolutely it. Like I'm I'm gonna give myself kind of potentially one more um, run at this, which I did. I I stopped for seven months when I was telling him that. I I then ended up going back and I drank for another year. And I and I said to myself, I kind of set that up of like I don't know if I'll go back and drink. But if I do, and if it continues and goes back to the same scenario, which it did and it always does, that is it. So, um, and it was it. So December 14th, uh, 2014 was was my final, final stop. I'll be at that six-year anniversary here in, in less than a month. Awesome, awesome. Um, and when you think about all of those times, like say 10 times going round in the cycle, what were some of the patterns or commonalities or things you noticed about those cycles when you look back on it? 
Well, it never changed. It never, ever, ever changed. And working with clients, I see the same thing. So there's, again, I call it that drinking amnesia of not drinking and then, you know, really contemplating going back to drinking and kind of that amnesia, like, oh, it would be so nice, like a glass of wine on the veranda overlooking the beach or what, like this romanticized thing, sitting in the hotel lobby and, um, you know, on the on the business trip or, or out, you know, whatever, out on the patio on, in the summertime, like we start to romanticize all of this. And what I can say is going back and forth, the romanticized version never happened. Um, but what always happened <laughs> was this, you know, history repeats itself. And it's just, I'm going to have one, oh, screw it. I've had that one, pour me another, I'll have another. That's what always happens. And so, um, and I just got sick and tired of being sick and tired of that same Groundhog Day. It was as simple and kind of boring as it was, you know, and I always say that too, I say, like, my story is not that, like, I don't have this um, kind of dramatic crash and burn story like I would read in the alcoholic memoirs, and I would read them, searching for, um, I was like, and this was like seven years ago, you know, where is my story? Um, now more people have, have written, like Claire Cooley and, and um, those have, have written kind of more of that gray area story. But seven years ago, I, I wouldn't find it. I was like, I, I can't even write a book about this because my drinking is so boring. But yeah, I'm so miserable in it. And it's such a struggle. Um, and it plays such a big role and it takes up so much headspace in, in my life was, I think, the biggest pattern with it. And do you or your clients ever feel or did you ever say to yourself you know I'm not as bad as those drinkers you know I'm not on a park bench I don't have you know a bottle in a paper bag I'm not that bad did that ever come up for you or any of your clients all the time all the time yeah absolutely I, I think you know every client I work with one-on-one we are we have that conversation and I'm like I get it I, I so understand I mean this was me what you're describing, this this is me. And so, yes, absolutely, there's always that bar of, we can always find somebody worse um, than how we drink. Even the worst of the drinkers can find somebody still worse than them. And so, yeah, I think that justification um, to justify, um, and, and, and also using, you know, I've heard where people say, my husband's like, you're making too big of a deal about, out of this, or, you know, this is, this is no problem, or, you know, friends will say, why are you worried about this? You're, you know, you're worried too much. And so we can always find that external kind of proof or justification that we're not that bad. But again, I always then go back to, let's start at the beginning, not the end, not instead of looking for like that end definition of what it should look like, let's start at the beginning of there's no safer recommended healthy intake to begin with at all, zero zilch. So I think starting from that marker is a more real tangible, concrete marker to start from than to seek out this ambiguous, vague marker at the end of there's the definition of proof that now I'm drinking too much. Yeah. And you spoke about this kind of anxious, worrying mind um, that you, you had uh, within you, I guess. And how was that throughout your journey of drinking? What was that anxious, worrying mind like? Well, it got worse. <laughs> so, so alcohol makes, makes anxiety so much worse. Um, 
And, you know, and for me, I, a lot of it was kind of even the blood sugar piece. And so nutritionally, this is what, what I, I know and it's what I work with and it's what I teach and train. Um, but alcohol would just plummet my blood sugar. And so that was a lot of what I was feeling in the morning and everyone's feeling in the morning is low blood sugar and dehydration, which feels awful. <laughs> um, that's that queasy, sick, woozy, nauseous, uh, clammy, you know, feeling. But emotionally what that is too is that reactive um, anxiety, that kind of lashing out. And, you know, I feel like I, I am a pretty intuitive person and can kind of read people and situations pretty well. And that was another thing that really bothered me at the end of my drinking of, I would be like, is this my intuition about kind of, you know, I shouldn't whatever, um, take this job offer or date this guy or, or some, or is it my, kind of alcohol-fueled reactive anxiety from drinking a bottle of wine last night. And so so it was very hard to start to discern alcohol anxiety, which is, is going to last, even you know, hours and days past drinking versus my own intuition. And so the anxiety, the ruminating mind, the reactivity, the, um, the constant worry just was, you know, I – as you know, and your listeners know, it's like you can have a drink and that first 30 minutes or so is wonderful. But that's really all we get is that 30 minutes. And then the hours and days and weeks beyond that is, um, it was just constant anxiety for me. And then that becomes the vicious cycle to drink. And then there's that 30 minutes. And then my GABA in you know, the brain chemicals, it drops lower. I feel more anxious than I want to drink even more to um, kind of mitigate that GABA anxious feeling. And it just became a real vicious cycle. And the more I drank, I also have this sense too of like, can I actually stop? Which started to get a little scary too because I knew I was getting in a real cycle of how I felt physiologically, which was part of my brain chemicals, and needing that alcohol, which is a scary, you know, really kind of question to have for yourself of can I go through this day and this week and really not drink versus how much do I need it? And I knew I was getting real close to that and, and knew that I needed to get out before if I got too far in. Yeah, and how do you feel like our neurotransmitters play a role in our drinking and our not drinking and just in our brain chemistry in general? Well, I think they play a huge part. And, you know, my work and, and my philosophy and kind of position on this, um, because of the neuroscience that, that I know and have studied, um, you know, the current research right now talks about um, bottom-up, not top-down. And what, and what they mean by that is body first, mind second. And traditionally, we, we've gone the approach of work with the mind to change everything else with the body. But we know from the neuroscience, we know from the physiology, and I knew this. Um, and I was drinking, you know, doing what I was doing. But we know this, and, and uh, you know, an example I always give is like with a diabetic. It's a physiological thing that's happening. Their insulin is too high. And so, yes, for a diabetic to do some affirmations, um, to do some journaling, some healthy, you know, lifestyle things, 
um, can certainly help, but that kind of the mental side of things, but it's a physiological thing that's happening with the insulin. So we have to use physical mechanisms to mitigate that. And it's the same thing with the alcohol. Alcohol is physical, we're putting it into our physical body. So we're getting physical reactions, some of it being the anxiety, the nausea, whatever was happening with me, the weight gain, all of it. Um, and so I need to come at it from a physical side to bring all of those physical pieces kind of back into homeostasis and balance. So I can mentally affirm and, and do all that, and, and it's, it's extra kind of icing on the cake, and, it, and it's wonderful and lovely, but it, we really have to start with the body first to then start to change the mind. So the, the GABA receptors um, are in the body, and the GABA receptors are those anti-anxiety, um, you know, again, neurochemicals, and um, so I can think positive, but it's, it, you know, it might push those neurochemicals a little bit in, in boosting, but what's really going to boost them is physical uh, intervention. And most of us have been using alcohol as that physical intervention to try to boost GABA. But there's many, many, many other ways to um, introduce physical pieces to boost GABA that aren't alcohol. And so that's where I started. And because I, I knew that from the work I was doing, it's where I started myself, it's how I work with clients. And so, yes, I think that the neurotransmitters in this conversation, um, are, for me, are first and foremost to focus on the body because that's where the neurotransmitters are. We have more um, GABA serotonin receptors in our gut than we do in our brain. Yeah, and what are some of the things you recommend people do or clients do to change some of those neurotransmitters and to focus on the body first? So, you know, nutrition is, is my foundation. I certified in nutrition in 1999 and I learned about the neurotransmitters in 2006 and then did my TED talk about the gray area drinking and, and neurotransmitters in, when did I do that? 2017, I think. Um, so it's always been a real core of, of my work. Um, and, you know, I, I learned about neurotransmitters in 2006. I didn't stop drinking until 2014. Um, the next piece that came in for me was the somatic work. So working with the fight, flight, freeze, also working with the body, but um, some of the somatic work. So combining the, the neurotransmitters and, and somatics um, has, has what was really helpful to me and what I share with clients. So where to start? Start with the body. Um, I start with nutrients, I start with food, because when you balance blood sugar, um, it can balance a lot of things. So whatever the complaint is, whether it's um, cravings, whether it's insomnia, uh, actually feeling anxious, feeling depressed, uh, weight uh, you know, complaints, so any of those physical uh, complaints, balancing blood sugar is the foundational place to start. So that would be my first recommendation. And then from there, we can get a little fancy if, if clients want and people want with some added supports, um, with some herbs or uh, supplements, some added pieces. Some people don't like to take supplements, but I always, always start with just real whole food, eating on a regular basis. Like every three hours, eat some good protein, whether it's animal or vegetable. Eat a good healthy fat, um, primarily omega-3 fats, like fish oil, um, chia seeds, flax seeds, walnut oil, that kind of thing. And then um, carbohydrates, primarily lots and lots of vegetables. 
as, as that carbohydrate source. So that's going to pay dividends no matter what the complaint or what the struggle is. And then the somatic piece um, next is really working with grounding. When the body feels grounded and centered and oriented in present time, then the nervous system starts to feel calm. And so literally working with the ground, um, you know, going outside, bare feet on the earth can be incredibly calming and therapeutic. And um, if we can't go outside, just noticing the ground under our feet can be a really great place to start. So those are foundational pieces. There's hundreds of things to then expand out kind of on the blood sugar and nutrition and somatic piece, but those are some places where I start. And it's really, really individual um, because everybody has a different story, a different history, a different biochemistry. So how I work with clients is really customizing um, depending on what their goal is and looking at their biochemistry to put in some of those physical uh, building blocks, those missing pieces that they've been using alcohol for. Yeah, and do you see any com commonalities in biochemistry or physiology among your clients? Um, a big commonality that I see is low GABA. So I use a neurotransmitter questionnaire um, developed by a medical doctor in New York, and that was a questionnaire when I learned about neurotransmitters. That was the training that, that I learned. And so I use that with clients, and it's questions like, um, it's true or false questions. So I have road rage. Um, I have insomnia. It's like yes or no. And then adding those up, it types people of where's their highest efficiency. Is it more with GABA? Is it more with serotonin or dopamine? And then from there, there can be specific foods. It's all whole foods, all real food. <laughs> so, you know, everything you've all heard of, broccoli, fish, uh, you know, brown rice, that kind of thing. But different foods for different uh, brain chemical deficiencies, you can add in more of along with, um, you know, different supplements. But the fish oil supplement can be a really foundational kind of primary brain-boosting supplement for any neurotransmitter deficiency. And then also, depending on the highest deficiency, again, most gray area drinkers are low in GABA. Um, they're just more, it's more of an anxious kind of profile. Um, and then there can be suggested exercises, uh, some, you know, some wellness practices, but working with the body, so working with the breath, how you move the body, um, what nutrients you're putting in the body. So it's all very physical, physiological to bring GABA up, serotonin up, and hold it. So alcohol gives us the feeling that we, that first 30 minutes is kind of that feeling of like, oh, this is optimal serotonin feeling. This is optimal GABA feeling. It's a false positive. It actually brings it down even more. But when we bring in the real vital nutrients and kind of vital physical resources that literally boost our brain chemicals. I mean, there's been studies where, um, you know, they test people, they see their GABA levels low, they um, have them do like a 60-minute slow-flow yoga class for four weeks, they um, retest their GABA levels and see like an 80% improvement. So all of this stuff is like it's where the rubber meets the road with 
everything people has heard of, uh, breath work, yoga, you know, being out in nature, those kinds of things. But the studies have been there. The data is there. Uh, just like we can, you know, take blood to, to look at insulin levels, we can take urine to look at neurotransmitter levels, have people take certain things, do certain things, retest their urine, and see an increase with those neurochemicals. Um, but more importantly, is subjectively, people actually feel it, which is how I really work with clients. So I don't want people just going through the motions to go through the motions. So another, you asked about a characteristic of gray area drinkers. A big characteristic is gray area drinkers are high achievers. Um, they know how to check the box. They, um, you know, they, they perform well. They execute well. They often have, you know, like they like they'll tell us, I function really well. You know, it's like, I've got a great job, my family's great, my, like, in the outside world, their life looks great, and they're very good at, at checking those boxes. So when I work with clients, um, you know, first and foremost, I don't want this to be about checking more boxes and having more of a to-do list, because that can drain your neurotransmitters. Being busy <laughs> isn't necessarily a healthy thing. So when, you know, clients will be like, yeah, I, you know, I journal and I meditate and I, I exercise and I'm like, that sounds amazing, but do you like it? And they'll stop. <laughs> Wait a minute. What do you mean? Do I like it? Like I'm supposed to do it or I should do it. And I was like, no, 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 no. You don't have to do anything. But when you meditate, do you really like it? And they're like, I don't know. I mean, it's like, I, I should do it more. I should. And it's like, that doesn't really sound like you like it. <laughs> and so a real, um, important piece of neurotransmitter work is what lights people up because alcohol lights us up. There's a whole kind of circuit wiring. It's why we keep doing it. It's why we repeat it. So we want to find stuff that lights us up. And there's a real difference in talking with people. Um, you know, somebody might be like, oh my gosh, like I just love to dance. And then they'll tell me about it. And it's like their face lights up and they're, and I'm like, let there, that's it right there. That's what lights up your neurochemicals, your natural pharmacy in your own body, in your physical body. Do more of that. So there's not like a formula or prescription for everybody because everybody's different. But we want to find what lights people up. And, and gray air drinkers are so used to, well, I read this. You know, they, they read everything. They listen to everything. They're very well studied. They're very smart. Um, but they are putting themselves through the motions. And then at the end, they're like, okay, I did it all. Where's my reward? And it's like the point of, of these action kind of resource pieces to, to boost your neurophysiology in and of itself should feel like a reward. So some people dancing feels like a reward. Some people have a certain breath work practice that feels that you know, it's kind of their natural high to them using their own breath. For some people, they found, you know, a supplement like maybe L-theanine, which comes from green tea, which is a, um, can really help boost GABA and give that anti-anxiety feeling. And for some people, it's like, take, you know, my L-theanine is just, I, I, I can't miss it each day. It really just makes a difference and kind of, I can feel it. Other people um, might take L-theanine, do breath work or dance and be like, either they hated it, didn't notice anything or, you know, whatever. So that's how we work with neurotransmitters is what feels good and what works. And if it doesn't feel good and it doesn't work, stop doing it. You have full permission right now to stop doing it because the drinking, that, that's the thing, is everybody's achieving, producing, extending all this energy, getting to the to-do list, and at the end of the day, they're like, alcohol is my reward because there's been no reward. 
like you say, there's been no reward, and it's that sense of people aren't having that reward. Like you say, their their serotonin's down, all of the brain chemicals are down. They're not getting that reward, so then they're kind of drinking wine or whatever it may be. And do you tell clients to stop drinking immediately when they start working with you, or is it like a process? How does that normally look? Or do you say, drink when you want? How does it normally look in your kind of recommendations? Yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, I, I train other coaches and practitioners how to work with gray area drinkers. And then also, um, you know, as I work with drinkers, uh, this is this is the, the piece, and this is such an important piece. Um, and my clients define it for themselves. So, uh, you know, I'm not going to tell somebody that they need to stop drinking. However, people who come to me and are ready to pay for coaching are generally 99.99% of the time at that place of like, I'm, uh, you know, I don't want to keep doing this anymore. I don't know that I want it to, that I, this whole imagine of forever of not drinking, which is totally fine. But they're at that place of like, I don't want to drink. Like, I want something different here. And so my suggestion when I work with clients is to really get the full benefit of this physiological kind of rewiring um, replenishing with these physical uh, resources as we're customizing things for their biochemistry is it's much more beneficial, worth their time and money to not drink on top of it because it becomes a real push and pull. So we really want to see when we put in these other pieces that, again, they're not just checking box, getting a gold star because they're doing it, but did they actually get an effect? And the way to know if you really got an effect and what's going to start to be that customized approach for them is to not have alcohol kind of interfering in there. And again, if they can't stop drinking, where I'm not um, the coach to work with. So there's other programs and, and people who, if people are really in that acute phase that they can't stop. But if people can stop, I encourage them to really get their bang for their buck, <laughs> so to speak, um, working with me to make that commitment to themselves and not drink. Now, some clients then, you know, as we're working together, might have kind of that, well, I don't want to be able to have a drink and drink socially. Um, I'm not going to say, no, you can't drink. But we're going to set really, really clear parameters of what that looks like. Is it just on the weekends? Is it just, you know, when you're out and not at home? Is it just one drink? Are there going to be, you know, so we go through all that instead of just this ambiguous, like, I'm going to drink socially. That's too vague and it's too... Um, kind of open-ended, so I work very specifically with that accountability of follow-through, of um, you know people sticking with what it is that they ultimately want to stick with, whether it be not drinking or having a drink here and there. I can say once um, people have crossed into kind of this gray area and are hiring me as a coach, it's very hard to go back and have a drink socially and kind of stay in those parameters. And your approach feels like it's very much in the here and now, changing the biochemistry in the body. Where do you feel like the past and trauma and all that stuff plays a role? Or do you feel like with your clients that's not um, a major thing that comes up? How do you feel about that aspect of things? Um, I have not had one client where there hasn't been some level of trauma history, including myself. 
Um, it could be big T, little T. So I think trauma is a very scary word um, because we, we, our mind goes to like kind of the, the catastrophic abuse or violence, which it doesn't have to be. Um, trauma can just be, you know, the abandonment that I felt in my late 20s from that relationship that ended. It was very traumatizing in, in my physical system. There was no abuse that happened. There wasn't any violence, but it was very traumatizing. It was, would be considered, you know, kind of a little T on the spectrum of trauma. Um, and it, with my story, you can see how that opened the door for my drinking. And so I see that with... Um, with clients, I just do, and I teach it in my coach training um, about the trauma piece. And so, it's it, when we talk about characteristics, there's um, usually drinking amps up with gray area drinkers around some level of loss, um, whether it was a parent through a divorce, um, you know, in their teenage years, or something happened with a friend group, or um, you know, a loss with getting into college, or um, like an athletic. You know, I had a client who. Um, was it was on track for a professional sports um, kind of trajectory and got injured and that's where the you know that's, that's the trauma so again it's not abuse or violence it's just what happened and so kind of you know that is becomes very dysregulating in the nervous system if we don't discharge that and so a lot of us then reach to regulate with alcohol it can be miscarriage it can be divorce it can be um, you know, the loss of a relationship or a career. So those pieces are always part of the story. Um, and it can be abuse and violence as, as well. Um, but I, it does go hand in hand um, with this drinking story. Uh, a lot of my, uh, you know, influence too with, with my training and, and how the education I've had is through Bessel van der Kolk, who wrote the book, The Body Keeps the Score. He's um, very well known kind of in the neuroscience area. He's in Boston. And I've done some trainings um, with him, been part of some of his trainings, learned from him. And then also Dr. Gabor Monte, who's in Canada, he's a medical doctor, has written um, in the realm of hungry ghosts and when the body says no. And he's very on this, this um, philosophy, which has influenced my philosophy, I've also trained with him, about the trauma, how the environment um, being in unpredictable or chaotic environments, they may not be abusive environments, but just, you know, our, our nervous system responds to our environment. So, um, and then the ACE study, the Adverse Childhood Experience study, is also something that I'm very aware of, um, have studied, and include that in my training when I train coaches and practitioners. Yeah, no, that sounds great. And like you say, so there's these adverse circumstances which create a dysregulation in the kind of nervous system when you restore that balance somatically then there's the idea that the trauma kind of heals in a sense is that roughly correct absolutely and what's interesting like i said i professionally um myself studied neurotransmitters in 2006 i didn't stop drinking myself until 2014 i started learning about the somatic piece in 2012 it was very quick that, uh, you know, within, once I started learning that was introduced to Bessel's work, the somatic work, it was like, I couldn't know this and not know this. The somatic um, piece, the, the, the kind of the, the trauma, the dysregulation, that piece, we're still talking physiology, um, but it's a fascinating study, the epigenetics, how our genes turn on or turn off. 
um, from our environments, you know, from all of this. It, it's absolutely, absolutely fascinating. And I really started to learn that, could see in myself kind of some of, you know, the, my own developmental trauma of, um, you know, my, my parents were, were there physically, financially, but emotionally, not so much. And it started, the dots started connected where some of my anxiety of just having to pull myself up on my bootstraps and shoulder through and um, that anxiety, per, you know, it was anxiety provoking, kind of not necessarily feeling like somebody emotionally had my back. And that's exhausting. And, um, and alcohol felt good. It, it was some relief. It was some pain relief of, of, you know, taking on the world on my own. And so all of those dots connected. And once they connected, um, for me, knowing this trauma piece, knowing the somatic work was, was um, very impactful in my getting me to that final resolute. Knowing what I know, I can't keep drinking the way I'm drinking, and it needs to be an absolute stop. Yeah, and was there any kind of one person or mentor or anyone who sticks out that kind of helped you in your journey? Oh, so many, so, so many. Uh, so very early on, I brought in, um, the somatic coach who I learned from in 2012. She's also a therapist. She's a yoga teacher. So I was learning it through kind of the yoga lens and she's a therapist. So I worked with her personally, um, around three months of, of not drinking and was doing some of my own somatic, uh, therapeutic work and then continued with another somatic coach and still talk to her to this day. Um, you know, in kind of my second year, third year, I was, I was doing much more coaching and kind of active of my own processing. So yeah, I mean, the somatic work just personally, I, I work that and I refer clients all the time also for, for somatic work. I think it's, it's very, it's a very important missing piece that a lot of people don't, don't know about. Um, and then, yeah, so many, you know, I've worked with different coaches, um, different practitioners, through along the way of just balancing my own uh, biochemistry, taking that, you know, what I went through myself to continue to use, but then also to um, share with clients that I work with. So I've had many practitioners, many coaches, um, you know, some very supportive friends um, along the way. And then even the, the spiritual side is important to me. And, um, you know, that's been influential. I've had a spiritual director. And so I, that's how I work with clients. Uh, I don't think it's just, you know, kind of a, a, like a one community or one supplement. Or I think it is like throwing the whole kitchen sink. Um, it's a very comprehensive approach. It's, it's relational and spiritual and nutritionally and kind of emotionally and, and moving your body. And so I try um, because that's been my experience. I, I don't do it perfectly <laughs> by any means, but it's been my experience and certainly my philosophy about looking at the comprehensive big picture, and that's what I teach and, and coach with others. Yeah, and that's one thing I love about doing this podcast is I talk to loads of different people about all these different approaches, and I love all of them. Um, and I think it's interesting for people to find the one that works for them. And your one, just your approach sounds amazing. Like you said, bringing in all of these different pieces of the puzzle is awesome. But I just wondered if there was any kind of one um, or what was the most worthwhile investment you ever made in your life? And it could be an investment of time or money or energy or another resource. And how did you kind of decide to make that decision? That is such a great question. What's the most important investment that I've made? 
with around the, the stopping drinking support. It could be anything at all, anything that comes to mind just for you. That's such a fascinating question. <laughs> I love it. You know, I, I, I have invested so much in the functional nutrition, the functional medicine. So like I said, I certified in 1999 and feel like really my, my education was from a decade after that, you know, that certification plus the decade of um, so many functional medicine conferences. One of those being where I learned about neurotransmitters. So that was, you know, big investment over many years. Um, it continues to be an, an incredibly valuable because it, it's such a foundation of my work. Um, and I would also say the somatic um, investments that started around 2012 and it continues. So both of those investments, that because they're, they're the foundation of my philosophy, my work, um, you hear it in my TED Talk. You know, I shared kind of both of those pieces within the 50 minutes of kind of that physiology and somatic side. Um, I would say both of those, and they, and they continue to be the, the biggest investment, and they evolve and change, and different teachers come along, but I'm a lifelong student to, to all of that study and work. And do you have any resources or anything you wanted to personally share with the audience, any places to send them or anywhere for them to go? Sure. So my website is grayareadrinkers.com. I have a 30-day um, self-paced course called The Sober Choice. So if you um, want that, uh, like what a lot of what we talked about here, about some of these specific resources, I um, each day I do something like about sugar or insomnia or um, the social situation, and I, I do a quick video, no longer than 15 minutes, so it's not this long lecture, um, but it's just the quick kind of what I shared here, like supplements or the actual practice. I'm a very, just give me the how-to, like give me the concrete, like let's get to the bottom line. So that's what I share in that self-paced course um, and it's just a 30 day just addressing kind of all the um, you know as you're initially given up alcohol that support I also um, offer one-on-one -on -one coaching I have a private coaching practice called the craving brain um, for people who identify as gray area drinkers and want that customized biochemical um, accountability and resources as we as we work together and um, and then I do a like I mentioned a training program for healthcare practitioners and recovery coaches um, who want the nuanced kind of specialty in this gray area um, to then work with, you know, their gray area drinking clients. Awesome. And do you have anything else on your mind or anything else you'd like to share with the audience um, or any, yeah, anything else you'd like to sort of share? No, just I'm, thank you for for inviting me on. It's it's wonderful to, to connect and, and you know talk with your audience. Um, I I welcome you know any any emails, DMs, my Instagram. My Instagram is Jolene underscore Park, and I post about great area drinking on Instagram. So please reach out. I'm, I'm very open and, and love to chat via DM or email if anyone has any questions. Awesome. Well, thanks very much, Jolene, for coming on the podcast. It's been amazing. And thanks to our audience for listening. And please remember to subscribe on iTunes. We have re uh, new episodes weekly every Friday. And please leave a rating so we can get ranked in that algorithm and help more people just like you. Also, if you love the episode, which I'm sure you did, Jolene was amazing. Please share it on Facebook in any way you feel comfortable. 
And thanks again for listening. And as always, I wish you well on your journey in recovery.